Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. We should warn you before you listen to this podcast, it's about the organized white supremacy movement. In order to tell this story in full, you'll hear explicit language, descriptions of violence, disturbing references to the Holocaust, and racial slurs unbleeped. The skinhead movement has no basis or foundation in racism whatsoever. It's the exact opposite. I've had this conversation, I can't even count how many times in the 30 years I've been involved (laughs) in this scene. It seems surprising now, but in the early 1980s, skinheads in Chicago were diverse. There were white skinheads, Latino skins, Jewish skins, and black skins. But over time, the skinhead scene also became a place for Nazis. Original skins like Dan Bonfield didn't want them around. I'm sure you may have heard about the the, uh, Skokie incident. The one where the guy was like hogtied at the statue? Right. I was there that night. (laughs) One night in the fall of 1988, Dan was hanging out at a friend's place. A skinhead from Atlanta had just rolled into town with no place to stay. Typical thing in Chicago was basically in the skinhead culture, if a guy shows up from out of town and he's a skin, yeah, give him a place to crash, get him some beers, take him out, show him around town. You know, hospitality. At first, the new guy seemed okay, but then he introduced himself. He went by Whitey Powers, and there was that tattoo on his arm. I think it was death to race mixing or something like that. And we're like, okay. He had this huge black skull with a spike through it, and it said death to race mixing, and that did not go over well. Dwayne Thomas was there, too. Dwayne was one of Chicago's first black skinheads. So the Chicago hospitality crew plies Whitey Powers with beer. Then they take him downtown and beat him up. What they did next has become part of Chicago skinhead folklore. They hogtied Whitey with duct tape. We threw him in a trunk. He had this swastika armband that I stuffed in his mouth. We drove to Skokie. Skokie is a Chicago suburb. It was once home to thousands of Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. When they get there, they pull Whitey Powers out of the trunk and dump him on the ground, bound and gagged, right at the foot of the Skokie Holocaust Memorial. Dwayne said that finishing touch was his idea. It was like the perfect thing to do. I couldn't think of anything else to do. I was like... Dude, Nazi fucking staked out at the Jewish War Memorial. Dan Bonfield had left before the Skokie part. He didn't hear about that until he saw the news the next day. In my opinion, good show on that one. Kind of had it coming. (laughs) In the last episode, we met Christian Picciolini, a former neo-Nazi skinhead and leader of a white power band. We were vanguard warriors fighting on the front lines of a very fierce battle over the safety of the white race. In this episode, we go back five years before Christian became a skinhead to when the first skins emerged in the city of Chicago and the war over whether their scene would become the recruiting grounds for a new generation of white supremacists in America. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive.
Romantic Violence. Mainstream culture in the 80s, it was crap. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24 The clothes were hideous. The hairstyles, the mullets, and the dumb shit like that. Watch sitcoms from the 80s. They are shit. The pop music was crap. Movies were garbage. It was one of the worst periods of all time. In the 80s, David Spears was a suburban Chicago kid with a mohawk. If you were a teen at that time who didn't want to conform, life was tough. You have to remember back then when I first started being into punk rock, if you looked different at all, people wanted to beat you up. And today, I don't think there's anything like that. I mean, people walk around, nose rings, tattoos, and the jocks don't want to beat you up over it. It's just, they, you know, they might think you're a little weird. But I mean, people literally would jump out of cars and want to beat you up. The jocks would be like, you fucking faggot, and want to kick the shit out of you. But for David, there was something even worse about the 80s than the rise of shopping malls and bad fashion. It was the country's new president, Ronald Reagan. For those who've abandoned hope, we'll restore hope and we'll welcome them into a great national crusade to make America great again. To a kid like David, the right-wing movie star's ascent to the White House was disastrous. The very launch of Reagan's campaign in a small town called Philadelphia, Mississippi, was alarming. Reagan chose a town that was notorious for the murder of three civil rights activists in the 60s. They were brutally murdered by white residents who resented their effort to register black voters. To some, Reagan's choice of venue was a clear nod to racist white Americans that, with him, they'd be on top again. What happened to this country? How come white men can't run everything anymore? And where we are today is a continuation of that. At a time when David felt alienated by mainstream culture and the direction the country was taking, there was one solace, music. A lot of it was, with the punk rock thing, just a rejection of the culture and society in general and whatever that means to a teenager. Find a bunch of middle-agers now who are in the skinhead scene back in the 80s. Every one of them can tell you about when they first heard punk music. One day some kid walked up to me in school and handed me this cassette tape. On one side said the Sex Pistols, on the other side it said Iggy Pop. So I took it home and put it in the tape player and kind of changed my life. Very similar upbringing listening to that music. I would spend hours going through these bins and just buying music, and yeah, it changed my life. I suppose like anybody young, you want something, you want something dangerous, right? Young girls and boys escaped into the music and in the fact that they could look however they wanted. Bomber jackets, jean jackets, leather jackets, tattoos of all kinds, blue hair, green hair, mullets, mohawks, and eventually, shaved heads. 
A lot of Chicago's early skinheads started out as punks, and those who adopted the look took a great deal of pride in it. I eventually shaved my head and started dressing kind of that way. It just seemed cleaner to me than punk. I've always been very hygienic, so I like the feel of having my head shaved, too. (laughs) And getting shaved in was a rite of passage among friends. Dwayne Thomas was an early skin. And Dan Bonfield shaved my head, and I don't think I've looked back since. (laughs) In the eyes of many, these teenagers' countercultural look marked them out as lowlifes, troublemakers. I think a lot of people think that we were violent all the time. Couldn't be farther from the truth. They did fight, but also when they got together, there was the regular stuff, too. There were times where we would just genuinely get together, drink beer, be stupid, like just have fun, man, like kids, you know. I never really had like like family dynamic that I felt with a lot of these guys. I call my brothers, you know, they made me feel like I mattered, I guess. And their home was wherever they came together for live music. The Chicago scene had a rich ecosystem of dive bars and DIY shows at friends' houses, church basements, and eventually larger clubs. Like when bands came to town, they were always like excited that we were around. They're like, man, Chicago's fucking hardcore. They were like, you know, this city fucking rocks. I mean, we had a lot of stuff going on and a lot of venues. It, it really didn't matter what day of the week was, if there's a show, we were going. Places like the Alley, Cabaret Metro, and the Cubby Bear, and eventually, Medusa's. Medusa's became a hub for Chicago teens in the 80s. Not just skinheads or punks, but kids who were into all kinds of music. It was technically a juice bar that served no alcohol, but people drank in the alleys. Chicago's skinheads found a place where they could fit in. And it felt like one big dysfunctional family. People were quite friendly for the most part, you know, and there there was a a strong sense of humor about things. There were cliques, but there were no real issues between the cliques at the time. Even if there were cliques, there, there wasn't a big problem with that. People got along because it's all we had. Like, it was very diverse back in the day. There was, like, Spanish kids, there was Polish kids, like, Russian skins. It was nuts. And in Chicago, there was a strong core of black skinheads. Hello? Hi, Luan. It's Odette in Chicago. Hey, what's up? I want to really talk to you about all this. Lawan Harris was one of them. The world is still uneducated about skinheads. Shit, I lived by the skinhead code for a long fucking time, being a black man. If there's an unofficial historian of black Chicago skinheads, it's Lawan. Listening to him is like strolling down a hallway of portraits of the great black skins of the 80s. Only people care about, oh, these Nazis, oh. But don't nobody want to tell you about the glory years leading up to everything and, and like, these black men and Latino men that were skinheads. Dwayne Thomas was one of the first. Started listening to a lot of, like, music from England, like uh, the special, Selector, Madness, and just gravitated towards that naturally. Dwayne grew up in public housing, a place called Cabrini Green on Chicago's north side that became known in the 80s for gang violence. I think I really liked the whole skinhead thing because, like, 
a lot of the punks I knew back then, we would go to these marches, these like clan rallies and go there and fight these guys. Like saw a couple of skins there and I saw that they were on the front line. They fought. There were also Sonny, Marty, Mickey, Will, Quinn, and Jabari Adisa, who went by the name Corky. Marty was probably much more advanced philosophically than I was at that time. Whereas he made no bones about embracing Black power ideologies, I shied away from it. For many Black skinheads, there was an added layer of political activism, but their politics didn't always agree. I was like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm more on the working class thing. You know, I, I, at that time, I perceived it as something that would alienate potential allies. Some of them literally wore their politics on the sleeves of their flight jackets. Lawan Harris. Mickey used to make everyone wear African patches on their flights. I have African descent, but I'm an American. So back in the day, I wore a Chicago patch on my flight, and I wore an American flag. Mickey, on the other hand, his father was a pretty significant Black Panther. Chicago's strong Black skinheads were one reason the scene was so inclusive in the beginning. And in a way, it made sense. The very roots of skinheadism in 1960s England crossed working-class pride with Jamaican rude boy subculture. Reggae and later ska music. In the beginning, skinheads really were diverse and multiracial. But around 1983, David Spears noticed the first sign of trouble. It appeared on a concrete wall along a highway just west of downtown Chicago. Somebody was painting a lot of racist graffiti and it had this post office box that said romantic violence and was trying to figure out what it was. David hunted around and found out that the person who put up the racist graffiti was a guy named Clark Martell. He told his friend Martin Bilheimer about it. I remember him telling me, you know, there's this guy Clark, this sort of Nazi cat that's this kind of spray painting stuff all around and, and trying to recruit, you know, and I thought it was kind of weird. I thought, well, it's sort of a weird pasture for him to try to recruit in. Didn't think it would get very many recruits. Dan Bonfield was also hearing rumors. Have you heard about this guy, uh, Martell? He's got this thing called romantic violence. And we're like, no, what's that? And it's like, he, he puts out these weird flyers and he's selling these, these tapes. He's a, a racist and he is calling himself a skinhead. Romantic Violence was the name of Clark Martell's one-man operation that sold racist music, the kind of music that Christian Picciolini would listen to on the school bus five years later. From what I've understood, they, they weren't very good copy. You know, like he was buying records by, say, Screwdriver, you know, white power skinhead music from England, and he was just recording cassettes off of the album itself and selling them through his post office box. And that's what romantic violence was. Eventually, this Clark Martell materialized. He came to shows and parties with a small crew of skinheads to infect the scene with a new message, white power. They just would show up all the time. We were just hanging out trying to have a good time. 
and they'd show up and you know then things got real got a little rough should we say Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Even before the Nazis showed up at the punk clubs, David Spears had confronted them. It was in the 70s, years before the skinheads. David was 15. He heard that the American Nazi Party, a bunch of older white guys who would dress in German Nazi uniforms, planned a local march. To David... Those old guys were a joke. We went around, we went to a local deli, and we asked the guy what he does with the old bagels. So he saved up for a week and gave us a hefty bag full. And all my friends went to different supermarkets and stole all the Philadelphia cream cheese we could. And we made balls out of it. And we went and threw bagels and cream cheese at the Nazis. It's a prank that some might have found offensive to Jewish people. But to a teenage David, it was funny. Flash forward to around 1984, there was nothing funny about these new Nazis and their leader, Clark Martell. At first, they went by the name of Clark's mail-order music business, Romantic Violence. But then they adopted an acronym, CASH, for Chicago-area skinheads. They were hanging around Medusas, and we'd heard stories about Clark walking up to an interracial couple dancing and walking up to the white girl and slapping her and saying, what are you doing dancing with a nigger? Things would escalate, and they sought to cause trouble. We have eventually decided we'd have to put a stop to this. At that point, it became more of a war with these guys. In this war, there were two sides. Clark and his neo-Nazi cash crew on one, on the other, everyone else. They called themselves anti-racist skinheads. And the two sides would fight anywhere they crossed paths. They'd fight in the clubs. Hey, let's have some fun. Let's go to Medusa's and kick their ass. It finally came to that. They'd fight in alleys by the clubs. We would do stuff like get you know, the smallest one of us, a little Filipino guy, to run up to the biggest, ugliest one of them, spit in his face and run around the corner, and we'd be waiting in the alley and just stomp on them. Next week, let's do this again. It's like, come on, we just did it last week. They can't fall for it again. Well, they did. They'd even fight on the subway. You're in a still tube, you know, going, what, 60 miles an hour, and you're in a tunnel? There's a, you, you got nowhere to go. So it's like, you should fight if you want to keep your teeth. People would just, like, move back, like, oh, shit, because no one wanted to get hurt. Even before the Nazis showed up, fights were a feature of the punk and skin scenes. Usually they were about dumb stuff, fueled by hormones, egos, and pride. But when Clark and Cash came around, the fighting became important in a way it hadn't been before. It was almost a daily occurrence. It it got to the point where it was not enjoyable anymore. It was almost like you just had to do it because we didn't want them to get a foothold anywhere. We kind of saw it as our duty to defend the scene. (laughs) 
And the fighting itself changed the scene. Favorite music venues started closing their doors to skins, Nazis and anti-racists alike. A lot of clubs didn't want to deal with it. A lot of places didn't want to let us hang out anymore because of it. Definitely changed the tone and the feeling, for sure. When I hear stories from skins of that time, here's what blows my mind. They were so young, in their teens. But here they were, committing themselves to one side in a war of good versus evil. Anti-racists against fascist invaders. It sounds big to me now, and it must have felt even bigger in the mind of a teenager. But it wasn't just about good versus evil. David Spears may have been the only one who saw the history that had led to this battle in the skinhead scene. This went beyond cash. See, I never thought of it as just them. They were part of a larger white supremacist movement that was going on in the 80s. David wasn't just a young guy who'd fallen in love with the music and the look. He was a political activist. David was a member of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, which taught that white supremacy comes from white people, and so it has to be fought by white people, too. There was a resurgence, a backlash to all the gains that had been made because of the political action of black people, the civil rights movement, later more radical groups like the Black Panthers, and a lot of gains made. It's not just these skinheads. This is part of something much, much bigger with a long history. These teenagers in Chicago may not have been aware of it, but their fights in clubs and alleys were about whether skinheads would become new blood for the American white supremacist movement. The lines couldn't have been drawn any more clearly than they were on a July night in 1985, the night of the Wellington Avenue church fight. Could I run off and get a quick beer? Oh, yeah, sure. I'll just be a second. Sorry to, to keep you hanging here. Martin Bilheimer remembers it well. Uh, so we were, we were all sitting around, and we were like, all right, uh, we've got to do something about this. We've got to stop these people. We've got to do it in big mass numbers to show them that they're not only not welcome, they're going to get hurt if they come here, and they're not going to be able to recruit for their you know, racist army or whatever stupid crap they were doing. So Martin and his friends decided to make a show of force. In the 80s, punks were forever organizing benefit concerts. They'd be in church basements and clubs. There were Rock Against Racism shows, concerts to raise money to treat people of color living with AIDS. And there was one coming up to rally people against nuclear weapons. The Nazis were bound to be there. And we knew they were going to be at the show because they were almost at every show. And I believe they probably threatened... We're going to go to the show and beat up some fags and pinkos. You know, the usual articulate stuff. We all met up in my apartment, which was tiny, but somehow we had, you know, 15 or 20 people jammed into that little room, and we all just walked over there in unison. And I remember walking down the street, and we actually had people joining the kind of march thing. It actually looked fairly professional now that I think about it. And there's like 10 people, 20, 30. The entire Chicago scene... Skins, punks, everybody banded together. Like, say, there were over 100 people there, 150 people there. There was a guy who had a guitar case that had chains and bats and brass knuckles. Clark and those guys were standing there, and Clark goes, 
you guys got a lot of people. And an old guy from the scene said, well, that's what happens when you fuck with a lot of people. They were outnumbered. We told them, you're not welcome here. You don't support this. You don't like these bands. Why are you here? Just leave. And you know, we can stand here if we want to. And we just told them, you know, look, you're not wanted. Just leave. And we gave them, you know, an out. One of the cash guys, Clark's right-hand man, was known for carrying a large cane. In fights, he used it as a weapon. Dan Bonfield walked up to him. He struck me with it. As he was swinging it at me, I, I grabbed it and took it away from him and threw it up on the roof of the church. Dan grabbed the cane and threw it on a roof. And he looked at him and said, you owe me a new cane, man. And Dan was kind of stunned by this. And then I think just punched him. So, <laughs> At that point, the melee just started. People paired off and it just went crazy. David Spears looked over at a friend who had pinned one of the Nazis down and was slamming his head on the pavement taken by the ear and banging his head on the ground and just saying, we don't want you here. Screaming, we fucking hate you in his ear. We hate you, you fucking Nazis, and pounding his head into the concrete. And then the cops showed up because it was in the street. And a lot of the, the, the good guys ran into the church to try to hide from the police at that point. The fascists came in with the police and fingered certain people. And I was one of them and got locked in the, in the squad car. This fight was in the summer of 1985, still early in the history of Cash. But it was a major moment for the skins who wanted to drive Cash out of their scene. I don't recall them being at any shows after that. By us beating them up and chasing them away from there, that showed that this can be done. But the truth was, the lines in the sand weren't always clear. While there were two distinct groups of skinheads, racists and anti-racists, there were also a lot of fence-sitters, people who switched sides depending on who their friends were or who they were dating. And some non-racist skins even flirted with Nazism and listened to white power bands. Nobody embodied how confusing this all was more than a black skinhead named Sonny. Sonny had this aura about him that you could draw yourself to him and want to be around him. Lawan Harris. But you better be prepared for a night of shenanigans. Because that was Sonny. Either Sonny or me were the first black skin in Chicago. Dwayne Thomas remembers the first time he saw his friend Sonny with a new tattoo on his forehead of a swastika. It's like right here. It's like on his damn face. And I was like, Sonny is just Sonny. I mean, there is no explaining him. None. Wow. That's so... Sad? Yeah. You know, and it was very confusing. So we just took it as shock value. You know what I mean? I tried reaching Sonny. He didn't call back. Sonny's swastika and the general jumping between sides wasn't just puzzling. It also injected mistrust into the scene. Before, if you dressed and looked a certain way, it was assumed you were a friend. But once cash came around, that wasn't true anymore. Dwayne Thomas. The ability to be able to walk up to a group of skinheads and have a drink with them and not worry about getting knifed or shot in the face, that changed drastically. 
you might walk up and be hanging out with guys and then suddenly you'd be like, fuck. And you just got walked into like the midst of a bunch of Nazis. And skins coming in from other towns were checked out. Lawan Harris. When people would come into the city, we'd run a paper on them like, where are you from? We'd make them take their flight jacket off to see if they had any Nazi tattoos. And if they did, we'd beat the dog shit out of them. David Spears worked with other anti-fascists to build files on the neo-Nazis, a lot like what Antifa does today. People did intel, and we found out who they were. We took photographs. This is the closest to pre-internet doxing people, as they call it today, because we would get together in a group and sit around with these photos, and I know who that is, and we'd write on the back of them so that we had a log and a record of who all these people were. In a lot of ways... It made me more jaded, less outgoing, certainly less trustful of others. It sounds sad. Yeah, it is. You know, when it went from being something that was fun, they basically put the kibosh on it. In the span of only about three years, Cash had fundamentally changed the scene that so many punks and skins loved in Chicago. Some clubs had kicked them out. Concerts weren't necessarily safe places anymore. And the family they'd formed had been torn apart. And the very thing that the anti-racist skinheads were trying to stamp out had spread to other places. By the mid-80s, crews like Cash were popping up in San Francisco, New York, Dallas, Florida, Portland, Alabama. Street brawls hadn't stopped the white supremacist movement from infecting skinhead scenes all over the U.S. Does punching Nazis work? Sometimes. (laughs) Former neo-Nazi skinhead Christian Picciolini. You know, it feels good to punch Nazis, I'm sure. Is it effective in countering extremism? I don't know that anybody in history of being punched by an anti-racist that's changed their views. I've seen in most instances where that has actually pushed somebody deeper into what they're a part of. So I I would prefer to change the systems and the institutions that are creating this racism um, versus, you know, thinking that you can punch the Nazi out of somebody. Looking back, there are lots of regrets. For one, all the infighting. There were attempts to formalize anti-racist crews against the Nazis. Corky established a group called Shock, Skinheads of Chicago. While we agreed that uh, that the Nazis were the enemy, we fought amongst ourselves. Corky says they'd get hung up over personality clashes and squabbled over petty stuff. You know, like you take one step forward and maybe two steps back. You know, like all my idealism, when it really comes down to it, Shock was just another street gang. Even worse... Some wonder if the anti-racists might have grown the number of Nazis. Dwayne remembers how he and his friends used to haze kids that they called fresh cuts. Those were skins new on the scene, ones with freshly shaved heads. That was like a thing back then. Like, if you came around and caused problems or we didn't like you, they'd beat your ass, take your bomber and your boots and send you home. And you've been fucking excommunicated. Don't ever come around here again. Dwayne thinks he and his friends might have driven those fresh cuts to the other side, to the Nazis. Why would I even want to go around these same people that treat me like shit when these other guys are like, oh yeah, come on, brother, have a drink with us. You know, 
here's an album. You like this album? Oh, yeah, you can have that. Or, oh, you like these shoes? They take their shoes in here. Take them. You can have them. They welcomed those kids with open arms. And these are kids that were disenfranchised that had no older brother to stick up for him or friends that'd be like, hey, fuck you. Don't fuck with them. He's with us. The kids that we turned away then are the guys that are carrying a torch now, unfortunately. And the biggest regret, the very image that the word skinhead conjures up in people's minds today. Most of the skinheads in the 80s were on the same side as Dwayne, Corky, David, Dan, Martin, and so many others. They were fighting the Nazis. But now, when you say skinheads, people think of Nazis. The crazy thing is, Cash was never all that big in Chicago. All that damage came from only 10 people or so. And by 1987, the anti-racists did drive them out. Of the city limits, at least. That whole crew got up and moved down the Blue Island. Clark Martell moved his crew to a working-class suburb southwest of the city. He was never that successful until he moved his operation to Blue Island and got a lot bigger. It was in Blue Island that Cash found Christian Picciolini, then a young, impressionable Italian-American kid. The man who walked up to me at that moment was a guy by the name of Clark Martell. Any Chicago skinhead you talk to about the 1980s will bring up Clark Martell. Without him, none of this would have happened. He's like a mysterious Pied Piper who appears out of nowhere to lead young, aimless teens down a path of hate. It's not just this guy is a prick. This guy is going to also be very bad for you because you're going to go to jail. He's going to talk you into doing things you might not even want to do. He was a pretty charismatic guy. He knew what to say. He could fucking talk a burning man into drinking gasoline. It wasn't just some, like, skinhead guy or punk guy trying to be shocking and saying racist crap. He was definitely a fascist and would have been one anywhere. It wasn't that he was a skinhead who became a white supremacist. Clark Martell was part of the white supremacist movement. His plan was to go into the punk rock scene and recruit people to become these Nazi skinheads. Next time on Motive... Cash and Clark Martell. Clark could brainwash you. He was really smart and we were young and we were looking, I don't know, for something maybe. Like kids do. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault makes the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.